praise the name of the Lord. Thank you, praise team, for your songs tonight, confirming the word of the Lord. Tonight I've come to proclaim tonight that our Lord still reigns. The Lord reigns in spite of all the chaos in our country, in spite of all the rioting, in spite of all the violent protesting, in spite of the crippled economy, in spite of the worldwide pandemics that have taken place, in spite of the far-left rhetoric, I say the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the people be glad because our God reigns forever. Can you shout amen? I'm going to get right into my message tonight. I believe it'll be a message of encouragement to the body of Christ to hopefully make you even take you to the place of why you've been worrying like you've been worrying. I want to talk to you about the three D's of this day in time. We most of us know that the enemy has got a plan. He has got a plot to destroy us. But God has a plan. God has a counterattack. God has a plan to show himself strong on our behalf. A plan to strengthen you so you can stand against the wiles of your enemy. What does wiles mean? It's a trick or a strategy meant to fool, trap, entice, or even a device the enemy uses against God's people. Now, the first two Ds are used by our enemy to destroy a person or even a nation. They are spirits unleashed by the Antichrist. He uses deception. He is the father of all lies. And deception is the act of causing someone to accept as true what is false. And in using deception, he leads you to become delusional. It's a second D. Meaning you're being led to believe things that can't possibly be true. And you believe, and believe you me, that spirit is the forefront in our nation right now. So many people are being led to believe false truth. But the third D, though, is God's counterattack. To destroy the enemy's plans of deception and delusion with derision. Now, what is derision? We're going to learn what it is through his message tonight. In the midst of all this disturbance to our nation that we are now experiencing, which I believe is being orchestrated by the spirits of the Antichrist, working through sectors of people who have been deceived and made delusional by them, Although the Antichrist himself has not been revealed openly yet, he has an appointed time to arrive on the scene. His spirits are here preceding his arrival, causing an anti-God movement to proceed under his rule. And while it's evident that his agenda is no longer hidden and it has escalated to a point of public manifestations, the plotting that was once done in secret chambers is now the plan is being unleashed and being exposed publicly. And these anti-spirits are no longer secret about their plans as they once were. They're no longer just plans. Now they're active assaults. Because the enemy feels it's now that he has the opportune time and power to prevail, the full onslaught of attacks upon God's people has been launched. And while all this is going on, it raises two disconcerting questions for the believers And that is this, what is God doing while this is happening? And when and what is God going to do about this? So I want to read a passage of scripture that asks both of these questions and yet provides answers to them. If you have your Bibles, I'll be in the book of Psalms 2. Where David's asking, why do the heathens rage and people imagine a vain thing? 
in the NIV, it says it this way. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? He says in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against God, his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that says in the heavens, speaking of God, shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure, saying, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathens for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth." Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from away. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they, though, that put their trust in him. Amen. Now, in Psalms 2, it is closely connected to Psalms 1. You could say that Psalms 1 and 2 stand together as a double doorway in the book of Psalms. They both make it clear right up front that the Psalms are more than just ancient Hebrew poetry. The book of Psalms is more than just a hymnal book of the Jews. It's too a part of the inspired word of God. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked and bids us to choose which way we will live. Psalms 2 warns us there's a consequence to the choice that you make. Psalms 1 declares the Lord's authority over individuals. Psalms 2 declares, declares the Lord's authority over nations. And both of these truths are essential for having confidence in God. You see, it's hard to trust that God is in control of the affairs of your little life if you don't believe he's in control of the unfolding of all of creation. It's much easier to believe he's got your little life in his hands if you believe he's got the whole world in his hands. This is the message of Psalms 2. It's an assurance that no one nor nothing can stand against God's plan for God's chosen king and God's chosen people. And it remains an assurance till today for God's people. And David is believed to be the author of Psalms 2, for it is in Acts 4, 24 and 26 that validates this belief. Paul says, this is David in Acts 4. When they heard this, they raised their voice together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the heathens rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There it is, just as we had read in Psalms 2. So let's break down this passage. Let's draw some insight from it that will give us relevant instructions for the hour in which we now live. Let's find the answer to where is God and what is he doing while the heathens rage and plot in our nation. I know it may not seem always seem that God is in control when you watch the nightly news, but today I came to bring you news from another network in glory. I come to bring you the good news, not the fake news. I've come to report to you that according to God's word, that God is still on the throne, he's still in control, and no matter what it looks like, no matter what it sounds like. Come on, somebody. Psalms 2 declares to us the unimpeachable authority of Jesus Christ, who reigns over heaven and earth forever and ever. You know, the wicked may plot and scheme to impeach our president, but they will never impeach our God. I'm telling you, just hold on. And our God will show up 
and take us to this fire again. See, in verses 1 through 3, David begins by asking, why did the heathen raise and imagine a vain thing? It's obvious there's a rebellion going on this time against God. So it is, it is today. History sure has a way of repeating itself. And the devil sure has a way of repeating his tactics and antics. The rebellion we are experiencing as a nation is happening by the heathen. And the word heathens means the ungodly. And rebellion is a form of witchcraft. It's spiritual wickedness. It appears David's asking a question for an answer, as though he didn't know the answer. Why do they plot and conspire against God and his anointed? But David's not really asking a question in a way as many of you might be thinking he's asking this question. David didn't ask this from the perspective of wondering why his enemy plotted and conspired against his nation. No, it's more from the perspective of why do they even have the audacity to even try to come against a nation that serves God because he believed they will never win. He believed their efforts are in vain. He thought they could rage all they want to. They can believe they got it all figured out. They can land some pretty good blows. They can cause some damage. They can appear at times to even be winning, but they will never, 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 ever defeat our God nor destroy his plans. And he goes on to mention their plots in verse 2. He says, the kings there set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He's saying the rulers of the nation band together to attack God and the anointed ones and his kingdom. How relevant that plan is still today. Church, kings and leaders of nations are still plotting this very day against God and his people. Remember, this warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. It was Satan's plan then and still his plan today. Satan has been relentless in his attempt to overthrow the kingdom of God ever since he landed here on earth by attacking God's people through deception, leading them to become delusional. And you have got to be delusional to believe the things people have been led to believe. A man can be a woman. A woman can be a man. That's okay to kill a baby, even at birth. And homosexuality is nothing more than an alternative lifestyle. And God plainly states it's an abomination. Satan believes when he destroys God's people, he's destroying God's plan for his kingdom. The problem he's got is when he attacks God's people, he's attacking God. He used to be so subtle, but now he's manifesting through ungodly delusional people. He still hides in the background. But the manifestations of evil validate that his anti-spirits are here and they are active. Satan, in doing so, believes he will somehow supersede the authority of God and become the supreme power of the world domain. He's just using the wicked to do his dirty work. He's led them to believe his power will be theirs. But I got news for him. He will never, 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 ever overthrow the kingdom of God and supreme rule over all heaven and earth. He'll never overthrow Jesus Christ, the anointed one, who declared all powers given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, when Saul was persecuting the Christians before his conversion, while riding on his horse on his way to once again carry out a plot to destroy God's people, God struck him off his horse, appeared to Saul in the great light, and he spoke to him, warning him. He said, Saul, Saul, why doest thou persecute my people? He told him, when you persecute my people, you are persecuting me. And still today, when Satan persecutes God's people, God takes it as he's persecuting him. When Satan's against God's people, it's God's desire to show up and show himself strong on our behalf. He's a defender of the righteous. 
Then David goes on to say in verse 3, listen to how dumbfounded is this statement and belief that they say. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's break the chains and throw off their shackles. Chains and shackles on Christians, really? Do you know that the, king, the, that the ungodly believe that we as Christians are the ones that are in bondage, in slavery? How ironic is that? How delusional are they? Our God is not a bondage bringer. Our God is a bondage breaker. Come on, somebody. We're not bound by chains. We're banded together by grace and mercy to the chain breaker who has set us free from the bondage of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ who broke the curse of death, held in the grave off of us. Come on. Paul said he was a bond servant, not a bound servant. The heathen are blinded to truth by the ruler of darkness who has deceived the rulers of this wicked nation into believing that they have a power that he cannot give them. What we are going through right now as a nation is all a plot of spiritual wickedness in high places, struggling for power, the greed, and the lust that will leave them empty and destroyed through self-destruction. So what is God doing while the heathen raise and the king's plot and the leaders take counsel against them and the anointed ones, Jesus? David says in verse 4, four that while they do all this, the one enthroned in heaven, God, laughs at them. God looks at the way man plots against him. He laughs as his vain plans. God isn't afraid or confused or depressed about the opposition of man. He knows who's behind their plans. He isn't panicking back and forth in the throne room of heaven tonight, wringing his hands, wondering what should he do next? What can he do? While the nations rage, God is where he's always been, sitting on his throne in perfect peace, and what he is doing is laughing. The problem mankind has in his rebellion against God is they don't know who he is. They don't realize just how powerful he is. Many heathens don't even believe he exists. God is the one who stepped out before history's dawning and broke the silence of a not yet in a universe with his own voice and said, let there be light. God sits in the heavens. It, it isn't an earthly throne he occupies. It's the throne of heaven, which validates his authority over all creation. This, the creation he created, there was nothing created that he didn't create. So what does heaven have to fear from earth? There's a severity to God's laugh, though, when he's responding to rebellion to mankind. He's not signaling it's funny. He's signaling it's ridiculous for mankind to think Satan can overthrow his plan for his kingdom. Do we understand that overthrowing America is a part of a greater plan of Satan's to overthrow the kingdom of God? Do we understand that our enemy opposes anyone who serves God, any nation built upon godly principles? So he conspires with other ungodly nations and heathens of nations to come against God's people. Think about it. Every enemy of the United States is an ungodly nation, such as Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. And every heathen in this nation who rages against God's people is an ungodly person. We've got to come to realize if they destroy a Christian nation or a Christian in this nation, it's actually a part of a bigger plot and plan to destroy the kingdom of God. That's why Israel is at war today. They want to destroy anything that represents this kingdom. So while the nations of the world conspire against us, folks, you better believe they are banding together. 
The ungodly nations of the world conspire against us to break God's people and attempt to destroy our godly nation. While the leftists of our nation plot to internally break the bands of Christians, while the heathens rage with their violent protests and their riots, with their Antifa and their anti-Semitics and other domestic terrorists, as well as corrupt politicians, war against what Christianity stands for. But David says, rest assured, God is in heaven laughing at their plans, and he scoffs at them. He plans to put them in derision and speak to them with the, through his wrath and distress them. David wrote this psalm, and God inspired it to be published in his word as instruction and encouragement for those nations in the future who would face oppositions of ungodly nations, including us. His message is based upon his experience with rulers and kings of nations that he had fought against. He left us a record in Psalms 2 that he knew what he had experienced the other godly nations would too in the future. He knew any nation that God favored would be conspired against by Satan. Many times during his rule, nations surrounding his kingdom would plot and they would conspire together to overthrow him, to overthrow Israel, a nation favored by God. They despised Israel because of the God they served and the prosperity that they possessed. Their plot would always involve overthrowing Israel and stealing its wealth and turning its people to their false gods. They were vicious and ruthless, and at times it often appeared they were being successful. But many times David was even outnumbered by his enemies, but yet they were never successful as long as God favored their kingdom, as long as God was on their side, as long as we never turn our back on God, he'll never turn his back on us. See, David experienced how difficult it was to rule a nation for God and have nation after nation do evil to oppose him from without, but also from within. But he also knew what it was like for God to be on his side and to bring him victory and prosperity over every nation that ever opposed him. He learned that he would just remain obedient to God. There it is. That while the nations raised, heathens raised, and the nations plotted against his nation, are you hearing this? If we too can learn this principle, we too will experience the victories in our nation as David did in his. David believed that with God on his side, they would prevail because God would show up on their behalf and destroy their enemies and the kings and the rulers of the opposed nation while he held them in derision. In other words, God's plan, his counterattack to the enemy's deception, delusions, was he would ridicule his enemy and make a mockery of him. He would cancel their plots and their plans. Church, I have come to prophesy to you, America, hold on. God is still on the throne. And although the heathens are raging and the nations are plotting, God's about to put his foot down upon this ground and shake everything that can be shaken. And when he does, everything that the heathens have done will be in vain. And there once again will be liberty and justice for all. Come on, somebody. Give God praise for what he's about to do. So when's he going to move according to his plan? David goes on to explain the plan of God against our enemies. He says in verse 5, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Church God laughs in heaven, but he doesn't remain inactive. Before he acts against a fight, man, he first speaks to them. This shows the great mercy of God. While he has every reason, every right to simply act against the defiant man, 
But love and mercy compel, compel a loving, long-suffering God to speak a word of warning before he acts. Let me tell you what's happening right now as I speak, in case you haven't been paying attention. There are true men and women of God who are standing in pulpits all across America, and some even on street corners, just like I am tonight, and warning the defiant to turn from their wicked ways or else the God of justice will bring judgment upon their hearts. David said, God has declared a warning to his opposition. In verse 6, God says, I have set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. God wants the defiant man, his opposition, know that he has already established a king. There will be no other. His seat's not up for grab. Then David says in verse 7, I will declare the, declare the decree. The Lord, has said, the Lord has said to me, thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. In verse 8, God says, ask me, and I will give you the heathens. For thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Not only is he to rule and reign the nations, but he's also to judge the nations. In verse 9, you will, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is what the Lord's going to do to the raging heathens and the plotting nations who are coming against God and his people. The scripture certifies that the Lord's anointed has such great power over the nations that they are like clay pots and he can shatter them with one blow from a rod of iron. This shows why it's so foolish for the nations to defy the Lord and his anointed and to say there's no reason, there's no benefit to the defiant opposition. It's all going to be in vain. Then after these words of warning come from the Lord's anointed one, David counsels the kings of the earth to give up their foolish defiance of the Lord. He proceeds to say in verse 10, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. David calls the kings of the earth to surrender to God, telling them in verse 12, Kiss the son, or he will be angry and you will always lead to destruction. When his wrath is kindled, but a little, in other words, his wrath can flare up at any moment. Everybody's wondering, where are you at, God? When are you going to show up? I'll tell you. When? when? At any moment. He can put his foot down and say, enough is enough. In the twinkle of an eye, he had a plan for this day before this day ever come. You can read it. It's in your Bible. It was foretold. He said, kiss the son. Kiss here means submit. Submit to the son. David is the one the kings are to submit to the Lord because at any given moment, God can unleash his wrath upon the earth. At any given moment, he can say enough is enough. Church, I'm going to keep repeating it at any given moment. Christ can return any given moment, the rapture of the church. And when the church is gone, tribulation upon this earth will begin. And that dreadful day for the earth will happen. And at that moment, God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth. Read your Bibles. His plan is all recorded in the book of Revelations. And Satan, the mastermind behind all this plotting against the kingdom of God, will once and for all be defeated and humiliated. So kiss the son. Submit to him. I want to declare to all the kings of the world today, from this ordained pulpit, to all the ungodly leaders of the nation of this world who are plotting against God and his kingdom, to all the heathens who are raging against God, violently protesting and killing innocent people, and to every corrupt politician persecuting God's people and trying to silence the church, you better kiss the sun and you better submit to God before it's too late. Because you have now been warned, and at any moment, God's going to allow the anointed one 
to bring judgment upon those who oppose God. And God's fixing to cancel the enemy's assignment. And the church is fixing to rise and shine, and our enemies are going to be scattered. David concludes with this, for those who remain obedient to God through all the chaos, blessed are they that put their trust in him, who take refuge in him. David was making this case in Psalms 2. David said, why do they keep doing this? Why do they keep plotting? Why do they keep conspiring? Why do they keep trying to do these things they will never win with God on our side? He says they get together, they even counsel together, they plot and they plan together, but time after time they fail. While God sits in the heavens and laughs at their plans, as he sits in the heavens with all kingdom authority, Folks, our God is a great God. He's above all gods. Our God is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And we must understand, we still experience the same enemy that David and Old experienced today. Our enemy causes the heathen to rage and plot to destroy us. And while we worry and we fret and limit our fear of their plans, instead of having faith in God's plans, Folks, this assault against our nation and our religious freedom is a plot that has been conspired by Satan to destroy a nation that was built upon godly principles and as a result has prophesied, prospered, and been highly favored by God. And our enemy is using the heathens of our nation to carry out his plans. But what we're losing sight of is God has a plan for us. He gave us his plan in writing. He's given us to us in written promises. He figured all this out before this ever became. This plan was to be passed down from generation to generation. There has never, nor will there ever, be a generation of kings that will destroy the kingdom of God. We may suffer violence, but never ultimate defeat. We may be cast down, but will not be destroyed. We may be persecuted, but we won't be abandoned. David declared the anointed one, the Son of God, is coming in the last days. It will be a dreadful day for our enemies when he pours out his wrath. For when he's done, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You see, death to a Christian is one of victory, because whether by the grave or the rapture, we win. Only those who never kiss the anointed one will suffer for eternity. And we've got to realize what's going on in the world now is much bigger than a socialism thrust or a political battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's between good and evil. It's gradually coming to the surface to what it all boils down to. The attack on our Christian beliefs and religious freedoms are actually an attack on our God. Therefore, anything or anyone that has a resemblance of Christ and his kingdom will be plotted against by our kings and leaders that will cause the heathen to rage against God. It's an antichrist spirit pushing an anti-God movement. Right now, it's about abolishing laws that support morals and principles. It's about abolishing laws that support religious freedoms. It's becoming about statues and symbols that represent God. They're plotting to remove them. It's becoming about open practices of worship, plotting efforts to close churches at public display worship. It's about snuffing out public prayer that prays to Jehovah, yet tolerant of prayers for those who pray to Muhammad and Buddha. But it's going to come down to a time it will openly flat out be directly expressed to silence the Christians. It's going to come to a time we'll be personally attacked in an effort to attack God by attacking his people. The people of China 
are attacked every day personally. There are no laws to protect them. They must first remove their, our protection. And I want to tell you something. It's going to get real personal. By going to China, I have seen where we're headed. If he was to go to China, they worship their God in back rooms, in underground churches. They're trying to snuff them out. They're trying to silence the church. But I want to tell you, though, the more they come against it, the more it's growing. Because God is on their side. Remember, Christ said, you'll be persecuted for my name's sake. And we're being attacked because we have chosen to be on God's side, to be a child of God, to kiss his son. Therefore, Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy anything or anyone that belongs to the kingdom of God. He hates us for what we stand for and for who we stand for. Therefore, evil opposes anything good. Thank God as a Christian, we are on the winning side. The outcome of this battle has done been decided. We as Christians have just got to decide that in the midst of it all, Come hell or high water, I'm on the Lord's side. Although many Christians have been defeated in many earthly battles, yet we still win the war. Come on, somebody. Somebody needs to show some faith tonight. And put your hands together and applaud God's plan and thank him that you are a part of his plan. Come on. You were saved for such a time as this. It's not a time to cower down, but to stand firm in your faith. It's not a time to waver because at any minute, God's going to say enough is enough. and He's going to set in motion his plan to ridicule and make a mockery of our enemies through derision. The heathens are raging and the kings and the leaders of our nation are plotting to attack, to attack God and his anointed people. There's a great rebellion going on in our nation against God. And while the heathen rage, while they rebel against God, God is on the throne still and laughing at their plans. And marking down, you're fixing to see God begin to cause their plans to backfire. He's going to put the heathens in derision. You watch. He's going to begin to make a mockery of them. He's going to publicly begin to ridicule them and their plans. Look what they've done to a former president. They have plotted against him. 92 indictments. They've used deception against them, such as Russiagate, causing many to become delusional and believe the lies. But have you been watching? Things are beginning to backfire against every plotter that he's had. And at any given moment, God can release his wrath upon their plotting, making all their plans in vain, building, I'm telling you something, God is able to defend his people. I want to say something. You know, when we built this church, we didn't build it without opposition. The enemy did not want us here. There were people in this community that did not want us here. I could spend an hour telling you all the things that we went through just trying to do this. Things would come up. God taught me something about patience through the building of this. Things would come up. We'd hit roadblocks. And I'd worry about it. I'd think, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. And then it seemed like it opened up. And then we'd hit another roadblock. And I'd be, golly, what now? And I think, man, we even went to a meeting one time, 
And a very prestigious man stood up in a meeting that we were sitting in there looking his face to face, showing them our plans, the city for our, to build our building. That'll never happen. Mocking us. But I learned something after a while. Every time something would oppose us, I'd just say, okay, I'll give it a couple days. And every time, after a couple days, God would come through. Because, see, we, I had to believe that God was in this. And God's not going to take us halfway and do things halfway just to get it here and let us fail. This was a God thing. And God, I thought, well, okay, it's yours, God. You're going to do it. So anytime something come up, I slept a whole lot better because I said, give it a few more days. And sure enough, that roadblock would be removed. And we're here today because of God and God's favor upon us. Give him praise. If our musicians would come. As a Christian, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. If the foundations are being destroyed, know this. What can the righteous do? Number one, make sure your calling and election are sure. Know that you know that you know Christ is your Lord and Savior. Two, make sure the anchor holds, but make him center of your life. Three, trust in the Lord. When everything is uncertain in this nation, he's the only thing certain in this uncertain world. So while the heathen rage against us and the nations, know that even when you can't put your trust in man, you can always put your trust in the Lord. Because the Bible tells me he's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. Now, what does that mean? This means it's not over until God finishes it. You see, it's one thing for God to start something, but it's another thing for him to finish it. God has declared, I started this thing. It was a good thing. Remember in Genesis when I began this thing? Well, I'm also going to finish this thing like I promised, and it's going to be a good thing. Read it. In Revelations, we win. A good thing that is for the righteous. It's not going to be a good day for the unrighteous. The Bible calls it a dreadful day for them. Church, he's the beginning and the end. And God is saying, I didn't bring you this far to let you down. I didn't bring you this far to leave you. I didn't lift you up just to let you down. Somebody hear me right here. This is from God to you. He's saying to his people, get your mind off the wind and the waves and all the noise that's distracting you from focusing on me. And to someone, you may have given up on me, but God says, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to finish what I have started in you. I put you in this race, he says. I called you, he says, into my life. I made you my own. I adopted you into my family. You are heirs of Jesus Christ. You're part of a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Although a peculiar person tells somebody you look pretty peculiar. Now look back at him and say, thank you. But I have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I'm going to finish what I started in your life. It's not just the fact that he's in, he is the first and last and it's going to be okay when it's all over. How about in between the beginning and the end? What about that period of time, though, in between then and the end? You know, we often miss the fact that he's in the middle of it all. Well, between now and then, there is this little word. In the middle of that period of time, between the beginning and the end, you don't want it to slip by you. It's a little word, and, A-N-D. The Bible says he's the beginning and the end. And that and means he's in the middle. Jesus Christ is with us between it all. 
In between all the chaos, he's in the middle of it. Until everything that's going on in this nation, he's in the middle of it. Just like he was in the middle of the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I have come tonight to remind you, he's still God in between the darkness and the daylight. He's still God in between the operating room and the recovery room. He's still God in between the sickness and the health. He's still God in between the last paycheck and the next paycheck. He's still God in between the last relationship and the next relationship. Somebody help me pray preach right here. He's still God in between the doctor's report and God's report. He's still God in between the old job and the new job. He's still God in between the junk and the joy. He's still God in between the process and the promise. He's still God in between the test and the testimony. And Jesus is still in the middle of all your chaos, your afflictions, and your persecution if you will keep him in the center of your life. And I'm here to tell you he's more than just beginning. He's more than just the end. Jesus Christ is in the middle of all of this. And when you begin to believe he can't conquer your enemy, you're being deceived. You're believing a lie. And when you begin to believe you have no need of him, you have become delusional. You're believing a truth to be false. Would you stand with me?